So fasting, you know, I think is one of those things where it's a mental challenge, but once you've done it several times, it becomes a lot easier from a physical standpoint. I'm pretty used to it, so I know what to expect, and I think that probably helps me. What I like about biohacking and data tracking is trying to figure out ways of finding indirect measurements of insulin, autophagy. You know, obviously we can measure glucose, ketones, but there's certain things that we cannot measure um, and so if we can indirectly measure them through things like HRV measurements, um, I think it gives you a better insight into overall how your body is doing. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body, Mind, Empowerment podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest is John Lemansky. John is a medical doctor who practices the ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting, and other biohacks. John, welcome to the show. Sam, it's always good to be with you. Yeah, we did like a podcast, maybe I think it was a year ago or a little bit less. And uh, what, I've been yeah. doing, what, what, what you've been doing uh, since that time? Yeah, you know... Um, a little bit of uh, biohacking, a little bit of fasting, a little bit of experimentation. Um, you know, like you in the process of finishing up a book, and uh, so working on that. So quite a bit of the same thing. Obviously, still working with clients, patients, and uh, trying to get people healthy again. Nice, nice. Has there any? Has there been like any changes in the medical community that you've seen over the last, you know, uh, half year? Yeah, I think there's been a, um, more medical physicians coming into the low-carb keto world, um, at least becoming more vocal about it. Um, as far as biohacking, probably not many yet. Uh, I think it's still probably another five, six years before. Um, you know, we talk about just lifestyle modification, and that's always a prescription, you know, diet and lifestyle changes, but we never really talk about what that means. Mm -hmm. So I think it's going to be another five, six years before real biohacking becomes maybe part of the medical uh, establishment. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I do agree that keto and uh, low-carb eating and uh, intermittent fasting, those things they have become really popular. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, some, some like real, you know, there's, there's layers to it. And uh, there's definitely like uh, the optimal kind of nutrition or optimal uh, health lifestyle for anyone. Is gonna, everyone is going to be different. And that's kind of based, based upon like right. their own genetics uh, their biomarkers and so on. So that's where like you have to go into more in depth with uh, more genetic testing and actually do more of the, like this biohacking thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and on the subject of keto and physicians, you know, if you still have the premise that eating fat is going to cause cardiovascular disease until that changes, which I don't see that really changing probably ever. Um, it's going to be hard for medical establishment to really get behind fully some sort of diet like keto or low carb i think you'll see them do more of a mediterranean based diet with olive oil things like that more monounsaturated fats um but that's probably going to be the limiting factor to get physicians over to real keto and low carb high fat diets um, i definitely agree with you as far as the individuality and i think as far as trends that's one of the trends that i've seen quite a bit where people are now noticing that okay you know the idea of just doing macros where you're hitting certain numbers as far as percentages of macronutrients uh, starts off well for most people just as a, a, as a basic idea of what they should do. But then they get to a point where it's maybe not working very well or as effectively. And then they realize, okay, I need to figure out specifically what's going to work with me. Is it going to be intermittent fasting? Is it going to be alternative fasting? You know, implementing different biohacks. So I think you're noticing the trend going from just all you have to do is eat keto to no, I need to do a little bit more. I see a lot of people now starting to talk about biohacking, um, you know, cold water immersion, sauna, I think is becoming popular. Um, maybe not so much of the other ones. I think photobiomodulation is becoming a lot more popular with the juve light being, you know, a little bit more affordable now. Um, so I think you're seeing the trend. It's always hard to to know, though, if because we're running in the same circle, is that trend really becoming you know mainstream, or is it just because we are always seeing the same thing in our feeds? <laughs> it's just allowing us to think that maybe it's becoming more popular. Right. I hope to think that uh, it's really kind of growing as a trend, and 
you and other people like Tim who are really kind of trying to get the message out beyond just nutrition um, will make it more accessible to people. Yeah, for sure. Like, uh, it, it may be true that although we think that these things are becoming more popular, it may be just that we 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 are in our own echo chambers and uh, look, <laughs> yeah. looking at our own feeds. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, oh well, there's 20 people doing it. Everybody must be doing it, but yeah. uh, probably not so much. Yeah, that, that's true. But yeah, I, 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 there's n nevertheless, like uh, f for instance, intermittent fasting. He's even on the mainstream news quite popular. So. Uh, what kind of uh, experiments have you been doing with uh, fasting? Yeah, so as a, as a baseline, I usually will do 24-hour fast about five times a week. I've been doing a lot of alternative day fasting, so 36-hour fast. Um, I did a few experiments where I wanted to show people, I mean, there's a fear with fasting, I think, which is going away, but I wanted to show people kind of the experience of doing different types of fast to really get into ketosis. So I did an experiment which I did five days of an egg fast. So I ate eggs mm. for five days. <laughs> and then I did a five-day uh, water fast with electrolytes. And then I did a five-day of exogenous ketones MCT fast. So all I was consuming was that. Um, and then showing on a continuous glucose monitor and um, you know, fasting ketone levels, what, what would you normally expect for somebody to, to see? Um, what happens as far as glucose levels? What are the symptoms associated with it? Um, and it was pretty fascinating and I did it back to back to back. So mm -hmm. I did five days and then I would do one day of really refeeding, trying to break ketosis, which was pretty hard to do. Mm -hmm. And then I would go into the next five days. So probably not the smartest in terms of doing them so quick, close to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, but I wanted to show that, you know, if you are really serious about going into ketosis and maybe you're having a hard time, there are three pretty good ways of doing it. And mm -hmm this is what you can expect from them. So I did that. Um, how, did, how did they change or how did they differ these different methods? So five days of eating eggs. I love eggs, but five days of eating eggs only um, gives you kind of an aversion to eggs after a while. Uh, I think how, it's... How many eggs? <laughs> I was eating around 12 eggs, 12 to 13 eggs okay. a day. Okay. So, you know, for me, somebody my size, I'm 170 pounds. That's a pretty good amount. I didn't really, you know, mind eating them, but by the fifth day, I was pretty tired of it. <laughs> I find it personally that if I fast um, without any food, so obviously some people would say you can have up to 400 calories during fast. I find that that really triggers me to, to have hunger uh, beyond what I would normally expect. So doing an egg fast, where obviously it's not a fast, but it just means you're eating only eggs. Mm -hmm. I find that to be harder in terms of hunger levels. I'm hungrier that way versus just doing a straight fast with water and electrolytes or the exogenous ketones MCT. I did that one because I think there's a lot of concern out there whether or not that's something that should be used. I don't think it's something that should be used you know, every day, all day, but I think there are certain situations where it can actually uh, benefit people, and I use it with, with my patients. I think it's, it's funny where people will say, well, if you take that, you're going to get kicked out of ketosis, but they're not really understanding that if you're doing it once or twice a day, the amount of caloric intake is very minimal. And so maybe for transient time, you'll get kicked out of ketosis, but long-term wise, you're able to stay in ketosis a lot longer. So that was kind of the rationale behind doing hmm. that one as well. Yeah, with the, you know, although uh, let's say maybe 100 calories of MCT oil may break uh, autophagy for even like a few hours, and uh, then yep. you're going to go back into it faster if you're doing it like a three-day fast or something. It's not going to be like that significant. The, the, the idea is only that you're not consuming like an ex, extra amount of uh, fat and calories. Yeah, exactly. And, and if you think about it, so the Bulletproof coffee, you know, you can consume up to 400 calories at a pop. And so I think there's a, a, a benefit to using that. But I've also noticed that people will use that maybe instead of once a day, they'll use it mm. four times a day or three, four times a day. And all of a sudden now you're consuming massive amounts of calories, even if they're fat calories, they're still going to be uh, you know, negative in terms of energy uh, balance. And so I think you know, if you're doing it in strategic situations, using those products can be beneficial. Um, but that's once you've really dialed in your own nutrition and using that as kind of the, the forefront of what you're trying to accomplish. It's just something that can be added to it to maybe help in certain situations. So that was kind of the idea behind it. Mm. 
demystifying some of the common misconceptions about, you know, those kind of things. Right. How how did uh, your blood ketones and uh, blood glucose change during these fasts? So, so with uh, egg fast, obviously, you know, at about 12 eggs, 13 eggs, you're talking maybe 900 calories with a little bit of butter to make them. Mm-hmm. Um, so ketones didn't rise as, as much as normal um, or as much as during the fast. You know, glucose, my glucose normally runs in the 70s and it maintained 70s, maybe high 60s. On the water and electrolyte fast, you know, my ketones go up quite a bit, usually in the four range by day three. Glucose, if I do an extended fast, I mean, I've been down to where the meter reads low, meaning it's less than 30. Obviously, uh-huh. with, with those kind of meters, um, there is some error. Once you get to very, very low glucose levels, it might not be as accurate as maybe something you know like a blood draw. So I would do finger sticks, and it would usually be in the 40s um, by day three. Mm-hmm. With the exogenous ketone MCT, Obviously, the ketone levels rise much faster. So by day two, I would be in the four range. Some of that is artificial from the MCT um, and the exogenous EHB. The glucose actually drops pretty precipitously. Mm-hmm. And so it'll go down in the 40s, usually high 30s by day two. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what I experience in one of the ways I use it is the first two days, I'll have people on the exogenous MCT just as a bridge to get into uh, the fasting. And then they'll do an extended day, seven-day fast. Um, and that tends to allow them to really kind of get into ketosis without, without having those severe hunger pains. Mm-hmm. And then they tend to be more successful uh, for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will say that when they take them, though, when they're fasting, it will actually trigger a hunger response. Um, and so that's something to be aware of for certain people. I don't get that experience, but I've definitely... Uh, heard about it and and spoken to people who have that experience yeah yeah that, that's that's true that it may happen that sometimes the kind of uh eating something even mm-hmm. if it's like a very small amount can cause some additional hunger cravings uh, just yep. because you're eating something and you're not getting like the full calories of a meal uh, versus versus like you said that if you're not eating anything then it, it can actually be somewhat easier because you're kind of in this deeper faster state yeah, when I'm doing these 36-hour fasts, uh, if I have like a little something, that, that triggers a severe uh, hunger response. So I agree with that. I, I have not found it personally with uh, the exogenous MCT hmm. personally, but I, I do know people who have the opposite effect. So I'm sure it's something uh, you know, individual that you have to be aware of. Was it, was it difficult for you to like start the fast again if you had like these refeed days? It wasn't difficult. Uh, you know, the longest I've done is uh, 21 days, but that was a long time ago. Uh, usually now what I'll do is every three months of five-day fast. So fasting, you know, I think is one of those things where it's a mental challenge, but once you've done it several times, it becomes a lot easier from a physical standpoint. Uh, I'm pretty used to it, so I know what to expect, and I think that's probably helps me. I would say that um, I was not getting out of ketosis completely, even by doing a, a refeed day and I was trying to do it where I usually don't eat heavy heavy carbohydrates but I was eating heavier meals of you know good carbohydrates to try to break out of ketosis um, and replenish my glycogen stores uh, generally I run pretty low I think because I do a lot of biohacking I do the cold therapy sauna I do a lot of exercise and I try to do a lot of fasting windows so I think that generally my ability to get into ketosis is pretty easy because mm-hmm. um, I probably run lower on the glycogen store. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think um, it wasn't difficult, but it was definitely probably not enough time to really break out of ketosis and then show mm-hmm. the, the reintroduction into ketosis. Yeah, I also like to think that, you know, even just like one, one meal of high amounts of carbs, that's not necessarily going to break ketosis completely. You're going to go back into it quite fast. You probably need like more time to fully, you know, uh, tr- change some of the pathways, maybe like two days, three days, something. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, you yeah, definitely need a significant rise in your insulin uh, to, to do that. And maybe it wasn't, you know, insulinogenic enough uh, type of meal. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my threshold for getting into, uh, 
uh, ketosis, meaning that my insulin level is, is very, very high. I can have a much higher insulin level because I'm so insulin sensitive than a lot of other people. Um, and so it probably just wasn't enough of an insulin spiking meal to, to break ketosis. Right, right. Were you measuring some other biomarkers like, I don't know, inflammation or, uh, or uh, insulin or something? So I did initially. So before I started it, I measured uh, high sensitivity CRP, HOMA IR, NMR lipid profile, and then just a routine chemistry, um, and then a fasting insulin. And I did that at the end of the experiment. I think the issue with me is that my home IR is always less than 25, which is the lowest you can get on the reading. My insulin usually runs in the two to like 1.5 range. And so if that's your baseline and you're measuring after a fast, it's kind of hard to drop it much lower. Mm -hmm. I always find it interesting with NMR lipid profile to see what changes as far as my uh, cholesterol markers, just because there's such a concern out there with uh, cholesterol still in the medical community. And so I, I like to show when I'm fasting that those numbers actually theoretically get worse um, yeah. and, and try to make an explanation of why that could be. Yeah, because like, uh, uh, the, the cholesterol tends to rise if you are fasting, right? Yep. Yeah. So the LDL particle will tend to rise um, just because you're mobilizing your own fat stores and you need, you know, uh, basically a way to get it around your body. Uh, I do something which is called a phase angle um, through a body impedance analysis. So I did that before and after. And basically that's a machine that'll measure your body fat percentage a little bit differently by looking at the water density. Uh, but you can get a measurement called phase angle, which is pretty accurate measurement that looks at kind of overall health of your cells from a polarity standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, it gives you an idea of whether or not your, your chance of getting chronic disease or, or cancer down the road is high. And, and so you try to have a higher number, usually in the 7.5, 7.6 range. Um, so I did measure that to see if there's any difference. There really wasn't, um, even after 10 days or 15 days of, of fasting. Mm -hmm. um, but it was just you know something to, to test and, and see if there was any change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's for sure. That's that's quite interesting. Uh, yeah, there's, there's also like the glucose ketone index that can also be something mm -hmm. to pay attention to if you're doing this longer fasts. Did you did you measure it? I did, yeah, because I was using the Keto Mojo as well, um, and I was um, using the Heads Up Health dashboard, which automatically calculates it for you. Okay. Um, and so, you know, generally I'll run around two point five on the GKI. Um, with this, I was getting less than one. So I was, um, you know, quite, quite, uh, high on the ketones and very, very low on the glucose. I find it hard to maintain a one or less than one in, in real life. I think, um, really the benefit of that is if you're looking at chronic issues or from a cancer, uh, perspective. Um, and so I think for the average person maintaining that level of one is, is probably unrealistic. Um, I think you can if you're extremely dedicated, but definitely less than two is usually what I try to shoot for. And I think that tends to be pretty realistic for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for those who are listening, then uh, the glucose ketone index basically tells you a relationship between uh, your glucose, blood glucose and blood ketones. So uh, generally, it's going to be better if your ketones are higher and your blood sugar is lower. And right. they say that the therapeutic zone of ketosis is when your glucose ketone index is like below one. And uh, usually if you're in ketosis, then it's somewhere between uh, under three or something. And anything above that is like probably not enough ketosis. So Correct. getting under one is really difficult unless you're like really fasting for a longer time. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the only time I'll be under one is if I'm doing an extended fast and it's usually by day four or five. Mm. Um, but it's not, you know, sustainable, I think. And it's really not necessary unless you are really trying to treat something. So, you know, uh, Dr. Sifri will use that when he's doing cancer treatment or recommending protocols in kind of their pulse um, pause idea where they're using fasting as a uh, augment to the traditional chemotherapy um, to see if they can improve outcomes. And, and so that's really kind of the genesis of, of that measurement. I think we've extrapolated it to kind of general society because 
it gives you an indirect reference of what your insulin levels are going to be, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're having a very, very low GKI, you can infer from that your insulin is going to be very low, um, at least relative to what it normally is for you. And so that gives you a kind of an idea of are you going in the right trend versus thinking that you're in ketosis because you're eating, you know, maybe a lot of uh, MCT or, you know, taking exogenous ketones or eating a ketogenic diet, but yet your GKI is still high, then you're probably not suppressing insulin enough to get the actual benefits that you're looking for. And so that, I think, is the, the benefit of that measurement. So I use that quite a bit. Mm. Yeah, and uh, me personally, I also think that it can also be used to a certain extent to measure like uh, autophagy or not, not not measure it directly, but it can simply tell you like some of the prerequisites for autophagy, like having a lower insulin and uh, being uh, low in blood glucose. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, what I like about biohacking and data tracking is trying to figure out ways of finding indirect measurements of insulin autophagy you know obviously we can measure glucose ketones but there are certain things that we cannot measure um, and so if we can indirectly measure them through things like hrv measurements um, i think it gives you a better insight into overall how your body is doing definitely autophagy is one that i think you and i are quite interested in as of yet there's not a really good way of measuring it uh you know for lay people we just kind of assume that if we do this based on the research that we're going to have some form of autophagy, mm-hmm. uh, I guess theoretically you could measure, you know, uh, CBC and look at white blood cells. Uh, you could do a peripheral smear and look at the actual blood cells uh, before and after and, and show, you know, innervation of new ones, but there's not a really good way clinically to, to measure that. And so uh, I think any kind of indirect measurement is going to be at least, psychologically beneficial for for a lot of us yeah that's for sure it's gonna help at least give you some feedback and uh, it's it's like humans are really motivated by results so uh, if it's gonna help you at least get you get your mind right then it's worth it (laughs) yeah and it's not even just the the results themselves i think it's the anticipation of having results so like for instance you know how many people have a fitbit and uh, probably never look at their steps or you know how many people have an apple watch and are tracking all this data, but never actually look at it. I think that's probably pretty common. Um, and so it's just maybe the idea that it's, you have some data to look at is, is what most people are looking for. But I think there's certain data points that are extremely helpful as far as directing kind of what your lifestyle plan is. Um, and I hope there's one for autophagy in the near future, but I don't, I don't really see that happening. <laughs> yeah what were you were you doing some other things as well during the fast like exercise or some ice baths you mentioned so uh recently i did a different um experiment where it was a water and electrolyte only fast and normally when i fast i try to really back off uh with a lot of the biohacks that i do so on a on a routine daily basis you know for a week six days out of the week i'll do some form of exercise Usually it's a combination of uh, weight training um, and some sort of cardio in the form of HIIT. Um, I normally will do uh, photobiomodulation, uh, sauna, cold therapy, and some form of meditation. Um, And that's pretty routine for me. I'll take one day off just to kind of relax. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so normally when I do a fast, I'll stop the majority of those, especially the exercise, the cold, and the sauna just because I don't want to overstress the body. Part of the idea is that you're really trying to, you know, regenerate. And so if you're right. doing this hormetic stress, but to an nth degree, you might not be getting that benefit and it might be overstressing. Mm-hmm. And so I decided for this one to do a five-day water fast, but actually continue all the biohacks that I did. And to see a couple things, number one, how quickly I would get into ketosis at a much higher rate, how low my glucose would go, um, and then how, how I felt. And so I measured sleep patterns. I measured HRV. I continued to look at different uh, metrics. I didn't do any blood work on this one, but I looked at glucose, ketones, and I had the uh, continuous glucose monitor on. Mm-hmm. I will say that the first two days were pretty good. Uh, I got into ketosis much faster, which is to be expected because I was basically burning through all the glycogen store that I had at a much higher rate. Uh, by day three, day three was really a, a challenge. Um, and so as far as strength, um, you know, trying to lift weights, I, w- I noticed probably about a 25% decrease in strength mm-hmm. uh, by day three. 
Um, and then I continued to do it for five days. You know, I got into ketosis much faster. Ketone levels were, I think, around four-ish by day two. Uh, glucose dropped down into the 30s by day three. Um, I had one day where I felt a little dizzy um, and probably overdid it. But otherwise, you know, I think it was, it was something that's doable. I probably wouldn't recommend it, and I don't think I'll do it again. Mm -hmm. um, so it was just a, another experiment to see how, how hard you can push your body um, and, and really challenge the, the notion that glucose needs to be, you know, much, much higher for us to function uh, uh, properly, I think. If somebody came to me or if I saw somebody in the hospital who had glucose levels in the 40s, 30s, and again, granted, there might be some uh, variable degree of uh, accuracy with it, but it was definitely lower than um, our understanding of what hypoglycemia is. Um, I, you know, most of these people would be in the ICU on a, on a glucose drip because the potential of, of death is, is very high. So yeah. it just challenges this idea of, of, of our understanding of nutrition. And I would say that a lot of the nutritional studies that we've gone based off of our understanding of you know how vitamin C works, different metrics have been with a glucose-based um, diet, and so I think one of the things that I'm interested in is how does that change when we're ketogenic and fat-based? You know, mm -hmm. how does that actually change the the function of the body uh, on a cellular level? And I think that's what a lot of the research that I find fascinating right now. Yeah, definitely, I agree. And you know, uh, the kind of normal baseline glucose level is. Some, somewhat high in my opinion it should be actually a, a lot lower because uh, like having uh, your blood sugar in the 100s all the time is probably not the best thing for uh, like all, all kinds of uh, health issues so yeah on a keto diet the, the, the kind of baseline is always I would say maybe like 20 uh, milligrams lower than it uh, normally is for other people yeah uh, but yeah, there's two things when, when you're talking about glucose too, you know, not only the baseline, but also the rate of rise. So right. a lot of the uh, research now is looking at, you know, what's the actual damage? So there's a couple. One is, you know, how quickly does your glucose uh, rise and fall? This, this variation in glucose is something that causes a tremendous damage to the brain because of homeostasis of glucose, mm -hmm. but it also causes a lot of damage to the individual organs, the endothelial cells. And so it's the combination of not only this variation, but also the baseline. So absolutely, I think, you know, our goal of having people at a glucose of 100 is probably uh, not sufficient enough at this point. Yeah, you used the, uh, the uh, continuous glucose monitor. So uh, yeah. what, what, what have been some other insights in regards to like uh, during your eating windows? Yeah, so I've used the, the Dexcom G6, um, and I've used the Freestyle Libre. So the Freestyle Libre is uh, not necessarily a continuous glucose monitor. It's a, a they call it a flash glucose where you have to rub the sensor over uh, the monitor. What I've noticed is that there is some accuracy issues with both. Uh, the Dexcom is probably a little bit more accurate, but it's also much more expensive, especially in the, in the States. Um, but... Part of the other thing about biohacking that you obviously know is, is there are other influences on glucose levels and obviously based on that insulin and cortisol levels. So I look at things like if I'm having poor sleep, if I'm traveling, if I'm doing heavy exercise, if I'm doing meditation, what is the impact on my glucose levels? I mean, I'll see a 20-point rise if I have a bad conversation with somebody on glucose. <laughs> and so... You know, I had a conversation the other day uh, and it involved my child and, and something he was bullied at school and that in itself raised my glucose levels about 20 points. And so it, wow. it's just fascinating to see, you know, let's say you have a bad sleep and you have poor REM or poor deep sleep. What is your fasting glucose the next day? Obviously, you can infer from that that your cortisol has been ri rising uh, much more precipitously. And if you're traveling, how is that impacting you? How is your circadian rhythm impacting your cortisol? Um, and then uh, you can measure that, obviously, with these continuous glucose monitors, which I think are beneficial. I think in the future, you know, from a cost perspective, if they can get the cost down, it should be something that is standard issue for most people, um, especially if they have insulin resistance or diabetes, but even younger, healthier people, so that we can prevent a lot of the chronic diseases that we're seeing. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, uh, it's going to give like a real feedback in real time and it's going to be very useful that you can kind of see immediately of how, okay, I eat this food and uh, I can like detect it immediately that, okay, that's actually going to rise my blood sugar. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So for instance, like one of the more common ones that I see with a lot of people is dairy products. So when they're starting off with uh, keto, they, they tend to do heavier dairy just because it's easier and it tastes good. Uh, but I know for myself, you know, that'll cause quite a, a significant insulin rise. But interestingly enough, it only does it when I'm in the United States, not in Europe. And I think it has to do with the pasteurization and then also the type of uh, milk that it, that is being used, you know, because we have different lineage of cows here. Um, so I don't get that when I go to Europe and eat cheese there, um, but I definitely get it here. So little things like that can give you an insight in terms of maybe you're not having success completely with a ketogenic diet. It could be something as simple as the food that you're eating. Even mm. if it hits those ratios, it's not actually um, allowing for you to suppress your insulin. Yeah, that's so, so, so important. Like food quality <laughs> changes a lot, uh, speci specifically for between individuals and how they react to those things. But, but you also did Absolutely. like, uh, I think I've seen that you did like a carnivore experiment as well. So uh, do you have, yeah. <laughs> did you use the glucose uh, measurements there? I didn't use the uh, continuous, but I definitely used the, the Keto Mojo finger stick. Okay. You know, I think um, carnivore is becoming extremely popular and, and there's a lot of uh, benefits people are, are experiencing. Uh, I personally uh, am not a, uh, a big fan of carnivore per se. Um, but, and I think it's, it's something that it's not necessarily an ethical issue because, um, I think if you have the ability to do sustainable farming and allow for meat that is, you know, grass fed, grass finished, then I think it's something that people should consume. I just don't know at this point if we have enough science to say that doing long-term carnivore is going to be something that's healthy for everybody. Maybe if you are somebody who's doing a lot of powerlifting, a lot of weightlifting, and you need that excessive protein intake in order to build muscle, uh, sure, then I think it's probably going to be beneficial. But then there's the question of the autophagy benefit. Are you, you know, stimulating too much mTOR? Are you going to have, you know, cancer issues? I'm not saying that carnivore is going to do that. I just don't know the answer to that. Mm. And so I think it's something that you have to weigh the risk benefit of, of doing something like that. Obviously, I think people are doing really well on it because it's very much an elimination diet. You're getting rid of everything else that may be triggering some sort of autoimmune response. Um, and so I think it's commendable for people to, to try it and see if they have a good experience. Uh, I personally cannot eat that significant amount of protein. I just can't. Um, I don't think my body type is really somebody who's going to benefit from doing beyond 120 grams, 130 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just don't think it's, it's something that's going to be useful because you have to do something with that protein. Right. And I'm not saying that it's going to get converted into fat and, and gluconeogenesis and you're going to become morbidly obese from eating just protein. Mm -hmm. uh, I just don't see the, the added benefit for myself from eating beyond 120, 130 grams of protein. Right, right, so right. I think it's one of those things where it's an individual you know, based um, diet that if it works, great. If it doesn't, then probably you should try something else. Mm, yeah, for sure. It's, it's again, like uh, it's kind of based upon like the individual and how they, how they re react to it uh, specifically because I would imagine that the way you metabolize meat and protein is also going to be depending on like, uh, you know, many different things like the microbiome and so on. So mm. it's definitely very individual. Yeah, it's individual, but it's also with, with, on the question of microbiome, you know, a lot of it is based on geographically where you're from. Uh, and, and so I, I don't know if that's really taken into account with a lot of the, the message that I'm seeing about eating only meat. I think if it's pushing people and it's becoming popular and it's pushing people to focus on eating real food, then I think it's a good thing. Um, but I think you can become very dogmatic in something that this is the only way that you can get healthy and it becomes very similar to, to the vegan approach where if you're not vegan, then you are, you know, the devil. I think you have to be careful that this type of eating doesn't go that direction and I see it maybe happening that way. Mm. Yeah. Did you see any like huge, uh, like uh, blood sugar swings or something or your protein yeah. intake did, did it differ much from uh, your regular way of eating keto? So generally I'll do about a hundred 
100 grams of protein a day. Um, I was doing about 180 to 190 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, I did see a, a elevation in my glucose. Uh, so normally I'll run a baseline around 70. I was running a baseline 85 or so. Uh, so I think for, for me, it was an excessive amount of protein that I don't, I don't need. I mean, I, you know, I'm, uh, like I said, 6'1", 170, I'm 40 years old. My goal at this point is to maintain muscle mass uh, and dexterity. I, I'm not going to be a power lifter. I'm not going to be, you know, trying to do uh, anything like that. I like to have functional uh, muscle, meaning that, you know, I like to surf. I like to do triathlons. So I, I try to maintain my muscle mass at this point. And so for me, the goal is a certain amount of protein that allows for that uh, versus trying to really build muscle. Now, again, if you're trying to build muscle and be a power lifter, then yeah, I think protein, especially a significant amount of protein intake will be beneficial. Um, but that's not my goal. And so I think you have to keep that into, in mind, especially when people are talking about doing carnivore for everybody. Yes, but in the context of what are your goals. And so that I think needs to be fleshed out a little bit more by the proponents of carnivore. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Uh, but what kind of other experiments are you planning on doing in the future? So the one I'm doing right now is a metformin experiment. Uh, so in the biohacking community, you know, metformin is something that I think there's a lot of arguments both, both ways. Um, and so metformin, obviously for people, I think most people know about it, but it's an anti a glycemic medication that is, you know, the number one prescribed medication for diabetics uh, to really, you know, lower uh, postprandial glucose, but also increase insulin sensitivity. Mm -hmm. um, and we use it and we've used it for 60, 70 years in the medical community. But in the last five years or so, it's become very popular in the biohacking community uh, for people who don't have diabetes, don't have insulin resistance because they think it's a longevity medication. Um, and it might enhance, you know, long-term benefits. Mm -hmm. But then the flip side is it can have some mitochondrial uh, properties that can cause some mitochondrial dysfunction. And so my question is, will I see a benefit from a glucose standpoint for somebody who's extremely insulin sensitive already, uh, who's ketogenic, who's doing biohacking? Mm -hmm. um, and will there be any uh, impact on cellular function? Now, the problem is trying to measure that, uh, that endpoint is hard. I'm using the phase angle, as I mentioned before, as kind of my endpoint to see if there is any change because that will give you kind of uh, insight into mitochondrial function. Um, but I want to see if I experience the nausea effects, if I experience the um, kind of hunger stabilization effects that people say uh, it will give you. I personally am probably not a big fan of taking uh, metformin long-term, uh, especially if you think it's going to be for a longevity benefit. Right. But I, I tend not to have an opinion on something uh, without actually experiencing it for myself. Mm -hmm. So that's usually why I tried those experiments. So I'm on uh, three, the third week, and I'm doing it for two months. Okay, how much are you taking per day? Uh, I'm taking 1,500 milligrams. Okay, so it's like a regular... So 500, three times a day, so pretty standard dose. Uh, you know, anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 is, is kind of standard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do think that maybe the most immediate benefits come from like lowering blood sugar and suppressing insulin, so to say. Yeah. And yeah, definitely it's going to be more effective for someone who has these issues with their blood sugar and other uh, right. related issues. Uh, but at the same time, it's like... Uh, you know, although, you know, I think that, you know, the, there's the potential danger of uh, suppressing your <laughs> insulin too much all the time either as well. And that's going to lead to like more mitochondrial dysfunction, so to say. You don't want to suppress your insulin all the time because it's, it may simply like right. lead to some form of uh, glu glucose intolerance in the long term. Yeah, that's a very good point, actually, because uh, I think you do risk that, that benefit, you know, that insulin suppression continuously. You know, insulin is going to be something very dynamic. I think one of the reasons that I try to do a, a diet that's ketogenic, but it's, it's really a lot of intermittent fasting. And when I do eat, I do eat, you know, quite a bit of carbohydrates that are nutrient dense, mm -hmm. is you do get a rise in insulin that way. Um, and so you're not always suppressing it significantly. Yeah. You know, insulin uh, is something that is, I think, in the community that we are running in is becoming kind of a... Uh, 
a negative term, <laughs> but obviously there's a lot of function of insulin that is extremely beneficial. Uh, so I think that's a, a very good point that you bring up. Yeah, for sure. Like uh, insulin has a has a reason why it's there, and uh, yeah. w- without without insulin, you would yeah also probably die in in, in yeah. some situation. Yeah, you would die. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I think there's this question of chronic uh, elevation versus episodic elevation, and there's a big difference between the two. Um, and I think that might be something that people get confused about. Yeah, for sure. Uh, other maybe like have you have you tried these more natural things like uh, berberine? Yep. Yeah. yeah. So a couple of things that I'll use, you know, apple cider vinegar, berberine, cinnamon, to try to see if if it uh, lowers, you know, postprandial glucose. Again, it's one of those things where it's hard to really measure the dramatic effect of it. Um, I think there's research enough that supports it, and so I do it. Um, you know, whether or not it's significantly beneficial um, is still hard to, to know. What I would say is that the only thing I would uh, caution is using those as an adjunct for allowing yourself to eat a little bit worse, right? So <laughs> I've seen, especially some, you know, very popular physicians online talking about they use these things in order to indulge in things that are, are you know, harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they'll say, well, I know that I can eat, you know, thin, thin wheats or whatever, some, some very, very carb-based thing because I take, you know, metformin or because I take uh, some sort of medication or right. alternative treatment and it allows me to do that. And I, I think that's a dangerous way of thinking about things. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And especially if we do it like very frequently, like uh, every, right. every day or something, if you do it like, I don't know, for some situations, like having a birthday, then you eat the cake and then you take the metformin or something and then I think it's fine. But, you know, if you do it very frequently, then it's not going to be kind of, it defeats the purpose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, if it's one of those things where you're doing it uh, periodically, yeah, I don't think there's any problems with that. It's the chronic versus the acute uh, response that, that I think both of us are really focusing on is this idea that chronically over time, if you're doing it frequently, it's going to cause a significant damage to your body. Um, which you will not be able to necessarily recover from versus, you know, once in a while doing something you like, that's, I don't think is an issue. Hmm. What other like supplements are you taking at the moment? Anything in particular that you're interested in? Yeah. So I've also been playing around with NAD. Um, you know, I think there's, uh, research on both ends. Some people will say that, you know, NAD that's orally taken will not cause any benefits, um, versus, um, liposomal NAD versus uh, IV NAD. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think there's limited downside in taking it versus the potential upside of improving that. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll take that. You know, I take a routine salt tablet every day, um, especially right now I'm in Puerto, I live in Puerto Rico. So I, mm-hmm. I tend to do a lot of outdoor exercise and, and sweat quite a bit. So I do that. Uh, I've been working on a kind of sublingual magnesium uh, tincture that um, I think is pretty beneficial, especially before sleep. Um, let's see what else do I take? Um, I've dabbled with uh, you know hydrogen tablets. Um, I haven't really seen much benefit w- with those. I think there's a lot of potential benefits with a lot of these products. I like to try them just to see if I see a significant change. Uh, a lot of times I don't, um, and so right. uh, I stop taking them. But that's you know, that's where I'm at right now. Mm, yeah, that, that, I agree as well. Like a lot of these supplements, they, the effects themselves can be covered uh, with, the, with the fundamentals like uh, quality nutrition. And, you know, you don't even need like a bunch of antioxidants if you're already eating a low inflammatory diet right. and uh, you're doing fasting. So right. that's the most powerful antioxidant there is. That's true. That's true. I mean, if you talk about, you know, really the, the main antioxidant of glutathione, mm-hmm. you can take glutathione. Uh, I see people, you know, promoting taking oral glutathione, which again, I don't know if there's really significant absorption of it um, based on the studies that I've read. If you fast for three days, your glutathione will go through the roof. And so that's, I try to, I, I think you and I are very similar in that we try to focus on what we can do uh, holistically i guess so uh, nutritional based but also biohacking based and then maybe adding little biohacking techniques or tools or or supplements to really kind of 
maximize the benefit of what we're doing versus taking all these supplements in order to just kind of live the life of that we want to live without actually focusing on the things that are important. So I think it's the, the way you approach it that's important, your focus that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, are you, how do you implement these same biohacks or how do you teach them to your maybe patients and uh, clients? Yeah, so I always start with um, you know nutrition first. So it has to be nutritional based, and and again, even with that, I think uh, there is a segment of population that needs to be very very strict on what they eat, very ketogenic, especially people who are extremely insulin resistant or diabetic. Their threshold for getting into ketosis or really allowing for fat burning is going to be much much lower. They need to have a suppression of insulin much lower. And so those people will preferentially be ketogenic, but then there'll be people who I work with who are low carb, paleo, primal. Uh, I've even had some people who are carnivore based and and are having a great experience. And then once they have that uh, nutrition based uh, set, then we start implementing intermittent fasting, alternative day fasting, maybe longer term fasting. And then we start implementing exercise, some uh, biohacking techniques like sauna, which I think most people uh, are okay with the cold thermogenesis. I think a lot of people have a hard time with, uh, so I tend to do that later on in, in programs. Um, and then we start focusing on things like circadian rhythm, sleep optimization, um, things like photobiomodulation, or just here. Luckily, it's sunny most of the time, so we do a lot of outdoor circadian rhythm training, getting sunlight in the morning, trying to eliminate blue light at night, things like that. Um, and then kind of individualizing it. So starting with uh, a baseline lab profile that looks at uh, some genetic markers, some SNPs, but also just kind of a, an idea of what their baseline thyroid function is, cortisol function, um, things like that, and try to really see how we can maximize what their goals are, but also um, what their kind of profile looks like to begin with. And so that's kind of my, my approach. Mm-hmm. Mm. How do you do uh, cold thermogenesis in Puerto Rico? Um, so a couple of ways. Uh, so I have a, a kind of a deep freezer, I guess is what you call it. And so I just fill it up with water. Um, I have a clinic where we do that. Um, I'm thinking about getting cryotherapy down here. I think the cost benefit though is much better with just cold water immersion versus cryo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I tend to get a $500, you know, deep freezer and just have people fill it up with water, mm-hmm. uh, start off slow. So a couple minutes, uh, at 40 degrees and then build up to as much as they can tolerate. Um, uh, I personally do it five times a week. Um, I tried to do about 20 minutes and the water temperature is usually about 40 degrees. Hmm. Um, I'll be going to Lake Tahoe in California to give a talk. And so we're going to jump in. Uh, Lake Tahoe during the middle of the winter. So so that'll be fun. Uh, So, you know, I try to do natural elements. Obviously, where you live, you have more access to that. But um, in Puerto Rico, not too many 40-degree water holes, uh, unfortunately. So you got to use technology. Yeah, but you do have like a bunch of more sunlight. So (laughs) That's true. That's true. So it's a trade-off. So we get more sun, you get more cold water. But uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, well, it's been great talking with you, John, catching up. And uh, before I ask my last question, uh, where can people learn more about you and your work? Yeah. Yeah, so my website is biohackmd.com. I'm on social media. You know, I'm older, so I'm not great at social media, but uh, it's biohackmd. Um, congratulations on your book. It's a great book, by the way. Uh, so everybody should should check it out as well. <laughs> Metabolic autophagy. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Uh, is there anything else you would maybe like add for the end? Anything we didn't touch upon? Or? Um, well, I think there's a, um, a big movement for biohacking. I know that uh, the Help optimiza- Optimization Summit is going to be happening in London, and I'll see you there. And so I'm looking forward to that. I think hopefully we can build biohacking uh, to make it as popular as keto is now. Because mm-hmm. I think in order to really optimize your health, you have to start with nutrition, but but that's only one piece of a puzzle. It has to be really kind of a lifestyle change where you're getting into a positive cycle of improving sleep, so you're improving your glucose tolerance, you're improving nutrition. 
so I think it has to go beyond just nutrition and uh, that, that's kind of the goal that I have and I think you as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's been great talking and uh, my last question is uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I've been struggling with um, meditation mm. or trying to do meditation for a long time. Uh, it's, you know, it's one of those things where you always think to yourself, I should do that, I should do that. Uh, and it took me about 10 years to really do it. And, and the, the reason that I think I was so resistant to it was because I felt like I had so much to do that I didn't have time to meditate. Mm. But what I realized is that by doing the meditation, it actually allowed me to focus much more effectively on what I was doing so I could get a lot more done in a shorter period of time. And so I think I wish I had done that 10 years ago uh, and been able to really kind of implement that into my life. And I think I would have been a lot more uh, successful and able to do things a lot more effectively. Um, now I've been doing it for about two years really, really consistently and I've noticed a significant improvement. And so that's probably something that I wish I had really done a long time ago. Mm, yeah, for sure. It does. It does help with a lot of things and uh, not just like yeah. your stress levels, but also like uh, focus and concentration. Right. 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 Mm. It's like yoga or, or, you know, stretching. Mm. Another one of those things where, you know, you know the benefit, you know, you should do it. It's just getting yourself to do it, getting it, into your kind of uh routine of life it's just it's it's a mind mindset i think yeah the same with fasting you just have to do it <laughs> yeah right yeah. Right, right right exactly yeah. well yeah thanks uh, thanks for coming to the podcast again john and uh, yeah i'll see you in the near future all right that's it for this episode of the body mind apartment podcast if you want to support us then i would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on itunes and the other social media platforms you can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.